You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond's Welcome to Curling series. This is a group of episodes that is meant to help people who might be watching curling for the first time during the 2022 Olympics in Beijing better understand just what on earth is going on in this unique sport that we know and love. Uh, It took me a long time to understand what was going on when I first saw curling uh, during the 2006 Olympics. And I also know all the questions that I get whenever I teach a learn to curl during the Olympic rush. So hopefully people will find this series useful. And hopefully it's something our regular listeners can pass along to their friends who might be finding this sport for the first time. This is the initial episode of this series. So we're going to try to give you a high level look at the rules of curling and how the game is played. Additional episodes will go over strategy you'll see from the teams, jargon you'll hear from the players and announcers, even the history of the sport. So you can kind of choose your own adventure and decide how deep into the weeds you want to go with curling. And in this series, to help make sure that we are giving you something that can really introduce newcomers to the sport, we've invited some friends of ours who are familiar with curling but aren't complete nerds like Jonathan and I to call a timeout on us whenever we fall short of giving a good enough description of what's going on or if we're assuming too much knowledge or if we're using jargon that we need to define. And joining us today is Lauren Brownlow. Lauren is a journalist based in North Carolina, where she is a radio host on 99.9 The Fan and a contributor for WRALsportsfan.com. Lauren, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get started, we want to kind of give listeners a chance to get to know you. Uh, Can you just start by telling us where you're from and what it was like growing up there? Well, I am from Greensboro, North Carolina originally. Most of my uh, childhood was spent in Sedgefield, which is like literal birthplace of the ACC country. So grew up going to ACC tournaments and all that, as you might imagine, grew up very into basketball. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've been, um, I've been an ACC girl. I came by it honestly, in other words. Yeah, I grew up going to Carolina games as a kid because my mom went there. We Then I went to Carolina when I was in college, and now I am you know, in a sports writer. So I don't, I genuinely, I know some sports writers probably do care. I genuinely don't anymore. I prefer everybody to win, to be honest. Like all the locals I cover, Duke, Carolina State. And even I'm excited, like Wake is good again. Like that's awesome. I love it as a, as a Greensboro native, especially not everybody around here cares about Wake the same way I did when I grew up in Greensboro. Another weird North Carolina fact. So yeah, I, that's the short version of, of, of how I kind of grew up. And I can definitely say I had never even heard of curling until maybe like, maybe college. I don't remember hearing about it in high school at all, or even like seeing it and being like, what are they doing until college? It's wild. That's to be expected in North Carolina. Although now there are not one, but two 
dedicated curling facilities in North Carolina. And I think there might be a third coming to, um, coming to Wilmington. I think they're working on getting their own facility as well. So do you know, can you, do you remember when you were first introduced to curling? I really don't. I th- I'm sure I saw it on TV during one of the Olympics or something like that. And I probably just thought it was like a made up thing that I was watching. Like, I'm like, what is this? I do remember being super confused by it and like, what is the point of this? Like, what are the brooms about? Like, what? Like, I, I found it somewhat intriguing, but also like, it's not the, as you guys have said, it's not the most accessible sport when you just turn it on and you're like, what is this? You know, it's not readily apparent how it works without someone explaining at least the very basics to you. So you're just kind of like, huh, don't really understand what's supposed to happen here, but cool. I know you've at least ex- tried curling yes. at Triangle Curling Club there in Durham. Is that the extent of your curling experience? Absolutely, it is. Yes. And it's not that I didn't enjoy it at all. Like, it was pretty fun. But, I mean, as you said, I mean, there aren't a lot of, like, ice facilities around here, period, either. You know, like, I mean, it was an issue for the Carolina Hurricanes for a minute because they didn't really have like a separate facility they could use if they needed to that was like up to par until recently. Like there just isn't a lot of ice around here for use. And so, you know, I don't know that I would have tried. If someone invited me to go curling again, though, I absolutely would probably go. Like I I enjoyed it and it was both easier and harder than I thought at the same time, which is I was not expecting that. How so? Well, like, I mean, you can get the gist of kind of like how to – throw I guess that part was obviously like the hardest part but it was it was also easier than I thought because I wasn't expecting to get anywhere close to anything I was supposed to be hitting and yet I was having some I had some decent throws but you have to get so low it was wild that was like whoa I was not definitely threw a a, like fell over a few times which is fine I mean you know Everybody was just trying, but yeah, it was just like, I didn't think that I would get even close or that I thought I would just like whiff it or, you know, I don't know. I, I thought it would be way, I, I didn't think I'd be able to get off a, th- a, a, is it called a throw? I don't even know if it's called a throw. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. That's what everyone says. And then that, that first shot gets close to where you want it to go. And then all of a sudden you're right. booked. That's kind of the way <laughs> it was for me. All right. So today we're talking about rules and gameplay. Is there anything in particular that you're interested in finding out today or asking us about? Oh, wow. I mean, I guess I am. Oh, man. I mean, I can tell you just looking at these words in your. (laughs) I don't know most of them. Let's see. Definitely curious about the lines for sure. Cause I don't think we got that into depth in depth. I guess I'm curious a little more about the sweeping because honestly, like if you had told me before that I would do better at throwing than sweeping when I tried that, I would have been like, no, you know, but I just could not figure out how to get the sweeping to work. And I still don't think I really understand that. Jonathan's our sweeping expert. So I'll definitely let him, uh, (laughs) let him take that one. So, all right, let's start because by the end of this episode, we hope everyone will understand the basics of curling, how the game is played, how the scoring works, and what all the lines are for. So we'll start with the field of play. In curling, the field of play, we commonly call it a curling sheet. And each curling sheet is 150 feet long, which is 45.5 meters. Uh, for reference, a Olympic hockey rink is 200 feet long and an NBA basketball court is 94 feet long. So in between those two, uh, and they are 15 feet, seven inches wide. 
traditionally at big tournaments, you'll see them set up four sheets and four games will be going on at once. And that's what's going to happen at the Olympics. And a set of four games going on at once is referred to as a draw. So during a draw, you'll have games on sheet A, sheet B, sheet C, and sheet D. uh, And they'll all start at the same time. Uh, We will start with probably the the, the lines that are the, the most recognizable for curling, which are those targets at both ends of the curling sheet, which are the houses. Jonathan, tell us about the houses. Are the rings worth, diff- worth different points, Jonathan? No. Okay. So the only thing that really matters is the really small dot in the middle called the pin, because that's the closest you can get to the middle. And then the other thing that really matters is the outer ring, the 12 foot. And the edge of that. So for the stone to score, it has to be somewhere touching. Any part of the stone has to be touching somewhere between the edge of the 12 foot of the circle. So the outside, outer, outer edge of the circle and the middle, the, the tiny little dot in the middle. Yep. And the, the edge, they call that the 12 foot because it is the, the house is 12 feet wide. So yeah, if, the, if any part of the rock is touching any part of the house, it can be a point. Do we want to get into scoring now or do we want to wait until we get into gameplay? We can do scoring now if we want. Sure. Let's do it. So did I explain it to you, Lauren, or not? Or what, what, what do you know about scoring? Very little. Because it's actually been a while too since I even did the exercise. Like which one's worth which point? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember which one's worth which amount of points. Okay, so none, there's no there's no bonus points. So you're either in the rings or you're not. The thing that matters actually is is your stone closer to the middle than the other team's stone. Okay. And then you get as many points as you have stones closer to the middle than any of the other team's stones. Okay. And it's not like it's counted at the end of the round, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's after all 16 stones are thrown as many as you have closer than one of the other team stones, that's how many points you get. So in theory, the most you could score because you have eight stones is eight points in a round. Okay, I may be getting ahead of myself because I was going to say, like, are there some people that maybe just try to get it in the vicinity? Or do you have some people who are the ones who try to, like, knock it in? Like, does anyone ever actually aim for the middle or are they just trying to, like, get it in position to be knocked closer to the middle? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I think I think rarely do top level teams put their their stones early on right in the middle like okay. you, you'd almost never see that so often they're actually not even trying to put in the rings to begin with and we'll, we'll get into why in a little bit but that's part of the strategy is you want to put them in places that make the you're basically trying to work in combinations of location with your stones okay and you got and people like strategize that ahead of time i'm guessing yeah yeah, okay. there's a lot of strategy involved in that. <laughs> so, yeah. But the, so basically, I mean, I, I've got a friend who's like a, also a podcaster, Dean Gemmel. Yeah, and he's he's a top curler in the U.S. and he he, he played played lead, and his job was often to put the stones in front of the rings. And he invited some guests to come watch a game. And after the game, they're like, "You're a terrible curler. You, you didn't put anything in the rings at all." And he was like, "That was actually my job," you know. <laughs> So I think often for newbies, that's like one thing that's like completely foreign to them is why would you put something way out of the way up there, but you're basically trying to set up a block for, for later on. Yeah. I can tell you that we definitely, uh, we all wanted to try to hit the middle when we tried it, even though we know that's not the wisest thing, but that's what we all tried to do was like hit the middle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, that's what you want to do when you're starting. Either that or make the rocks go boom. Those are that that was always oh, what I wanted to do fun. when I started. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're looking at the house, there's gonna be, you know, four circles and they're mainly there for ref- as reference points. The outer one, you'll hear them refer to that as the twelve foot, because it's twelve feet across. Uh, uh-huh. The next one, they'll call it the eight foot because it's eight. The next one is four. And then the the little circle in the middle that has the pin in the very middle, uh, that gets referred to as the button. And it's about the size of the curling rock. All right. So behind each of the houses are hacks. And these are like, you know, runners starting blocks. And that's where you'll put your foot to push off to actually deliver the rock. And then Jonathan, let's talk about lines and the two other than the houses, I would say the most important lines are <laughs> lines called hog lines. And you'll see them. They are the thick lines that are above each of the houses. And depending on where you're throwing the stone, those hog lines have different meanings. Jonathan, go ahead and explain explain those, those thick lines that are uh, above each of the houses. I mean, the easiest, the thick lines, they're called the hog lines, and they basically determine if a stone is in play. And it's, it me, it is for actually for both parts. So at, you're always delivering down a sheet, and you have identical house setups kind of in a mirror image at either end. So you have hog lines at both ends. When you deliver the stone, you have to release the stone before the nearest hog line to your, where you're delivering. And the stone has to get over the far hog line in order to be in play. So there's like a large track of ice that's kind of in the middle. And that's actually not in play at all. So if a stone stops before it crosses the far hog line, um, it's removed from play because it's, it's considered what's called a hogged rock because it didn't get far enough to, to be in play. Ah, okay. I think I understand now. I think I'm still good. It's, it's, it's always easier to like if you Google image search it and then you'll, it'll make like it makes quick sense too. The other one, you want to go to the other one that matters or not? Yeah. Okay, so the other one that actually matters is the back line. And so it, it only matters at the delivery end of play. So if a stone crosses the back line, then it's also out of play. So people have to put their stones between that hog line and that back line. That's about, what is it, 36 feet, 40 feet, Ryan? I always forget. Something like that. So you've got a you've got a pretty large area to put the stones in to be in play. But if it crosses the back line, it's out of play. And if it doesn't cross the hog line, then it's out of play. And with the back line, does it have to cross the back line completely or just any part of the stone? Yes, it's gotta go all the way across the back line and it's gotta go it's gotta come all the way across the hog line to be in play. And then the other two lines that you'll hear referenced most often, again, like kind of like the houses, they're mainly there as, as reference points. And those are the center line, which goes right down the, the middle of the sheet, and then the T line, which will dissect the house um, in the middle. Jonathan, why are, they, why are they important guide points? They're basically reference points. So it's and it sounds a bit silly but actually if you're sweeping a stone it's very easy to get disoriented and so it helps the sweepers know where they are and it helps the person who's yelling at the sweepers to skip to see where the stone is relative to the center line but it actually doesn't really matter in terms of the rules of play at all yeah but there is there's guidelines i don't the olympics have the four foot lines have they taken those out can't remember sometimes they do sometimes they don't they might be they, they might be in there because they're used um, during Paralympics uh, for delivery. So during 
during the Paralympic Games, during wheelchair curling, there are two additional lines on either side of the center line. And those lines, those lines are there because you, for the wheelchair curlers, they have to release, when they go to release the rock, they have to release the rock within those two lines. So they can't get like, they can't get really far out, like over on the side of the sheet and throw the rock. They have to do it in the middle of the sheet. And that's what the additional lines are for, for the Paralympics. Okay. Did I get that right, Jonathan? Yeah. All right. Do we want to go on to equipment? Yes. Lines are boring. Yes. All right. So we'll start (laughs) with, we'll start with rocks. Jonathan, what are the rocks made of? Granite. Where's the granite come from? Well, most of it comes from a small island off Scotland called Elsa Craig. But there's also another mine in Wales called Treffer. Why, what is so special about those two locations? They, they will tell you the... So, okay, the Curling Stone companies will tell you the only place in the world is to get that granite. I think that's not true. I think it just happens to be that's where you could get the best granite nearest where folks were curling. So it's basically because curling started in Scotland and a couple of the curling stone manufacturing companies were based there. Those were the two best kind of suppliers of granite when they were making curling stones. And it kind of, because there's not a huge demand, because basically curling stones are almost indestructible. Um, You know, and there's only maybe 2,000 rinks in the in the world for curling stones. There's there's more than enough granite at those locations to satisfy all the, the curling stone demand. But um, they will say it's the only place you get the right kind of granite. I'm sure you could find granite somewhere else too. But Interesting. I didn't know that part. And I, I will say this, as someone who had only watched curling before I tried it, um, it is very large and w- way more difficult to move than you would think. Like <laughs> it, it seems easier to move the, the stone until you have to actually be the one to push it or yeah, push it. I use the right word, right? Push it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 45 pounds. I think people don't realize that because I guess they're on TV because there's, there's the deliveries are so smooth they make it look easy, but yes, it's a 45 pound stone. So that's pretty heavy to, to move around. Yeah, especially for me, it was like, I was like, whoa, this is way bigger and more difficult to move than I thought it would be. <laughs> and when, when you played, did they get into putting one turn or the other on on the rock to have it curl down the ice? Did they get into that? Kind of, I think, but I could not master that at all. The, the fact that the rocks curl down the ice is where, well, we believe that's where the sport gets its name is the fact that the rocks curl and the rocks have to curl. Mm-hmm. And the way you can control that is by putting either a clockwise or counterclockwise turn um, on the rock, and you'll hear them refer to it as in turn and out turn. And so, if you're right-handed, the out turn is a counterclockwise turn, and the in turn is a clockwise turn. If you're right-handed, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason you do that is because if you throw a knuckleball at some point down the sheet, the rock will pick up its own turn. Like you can't, you can't really throw a straight rock. So the rock has to curl. So you put a turn on it to try and con- to try and control that. Jonathan, when the rock curls, it's curling on the curling sheet surface. And on that curling sheet surface are what? Pebble. So you might see it on TV. It doesn't always come off that clearly but there's a little batches of bumps on the ice and and so before the game and they never show this on tv actually they did there'll be an iceman 
and he'll walk down the ice with like a Ghostbusters backpack and he'll literally sprinkle water on the ice. So he'll sp- like I remember when I was a kid the first time I saw it I was like why is this guy watering the ice? And it's like these little droplets and that's actually what makes curling work. So the the droplets freeze and form these little bumps and that actually lifts the stone off the ice just a little bit and reduces the friction and that's what lets, lets the stone slide as far as it does. So if you were to, if you're just to take a stone on like a fresh hockey sheet of ice, it wouldn't go very far because the stone's just touching, basically all the stone is touching all of the ice. And so it's way more friction, but these little bumps elevate the stone just enough and reduce the friction and let it slide further. That makes sense. I just wish they didn't use the same rock words, you know? (laughs) Oh, like rock and pebble. (laughs) Right. And stone. And it's like, okay. <laughs> too, many, too many rock words. That is true. There's too many rock words. Rock and stone is kind of inter- interchangeable. You're, you'll hear Europeans call it a stone, and you'll hear North Americans call it a rock. I don't know why that is. I get yelled at by Scots all the time for calling it a rock. It's like it's heresy, and th- their explanation is. A stone is something that's been shaped from the ground, whereas a rock is something to just pick up off the ground. And they see it as very disrespectful to the curling stone to call it a rock. Ah. Okay. <laughs> I can see it's just it's their way to weed out the Canadians like you. Yeah, they, they don't like the Canadians very much. <laughs> Jonathan, what about equipment for the players? Obviously, the the broom is the thing that kind of makes this sport unique. So I guess we're to the point where uh, where we can tell people what on earth the sweeping actually does uh, in a in a curling game. Lauren, did they go through that with you? Did they tell you like why on earth we do this? Yes, they <laughs> they said that you can it changes the speed and so you can slow it down. I think you can. Well, usually they don't speed it up. I guess. No, you can, I think, speed it up too. But you're, you're, you're like trying to slow it down and also make it go a certain direction. That part I could not. Honestly, I could not get the sweeper to do what I was supposed to do. I was like, I don't understand how this works. I could not get the sweeper to do. I could not sweep in a way that made the uh, stone do anything it was supposed to. I, I did not understand that. No, I rarely can either. Really, it's the the professionals are the ones that really can can use sweeping to control what the rock is doing. So, Jonathan, go into that. Sweeping basically does two things. So, first, it heats up the ice. So, the moving the brush head back and forth on the ice uh, kind of just creates a little bit of heat. It doesn't melt the ice, but it raises the temperature of the ice a bit, and that lets the stone slide a bit further. So it's it's not the stone speeds up, but just like the stone doesn't lose as much momentum when the ice is a little bit warmer. Uh-huh. And then the second thing it does, and this this is the thing that's new. So we like basically by new I mean curlers only figured this out in the last five years, years. Yeah, four, four five years. years. And so um, basically they they discovered that the fabric on the brush head actually scratches the ice at like very microscopic levels. Like you need like a, a pretty fine electron micro, micro, uh, microscope to see it. But if you angle that scratching properly, you can then affect the direction the stone moves. So you might see some curlers at the Olympics, like the, the standard sweeping was just 
two brushes back and forth in front of the stone. But at this Olympics, you'll see people doing all kinds of weird motions. There'll be some people might be sweeping in front of the stone, kind of north north to south. There's one team that's kind of, and I think a lot of teams are going to copy it, is kind of specialized actually sweeping backwards into the stone. And they're just doing these weird angles with the brush to scratch the ice a bit to get the stone to move a little bit more the direction they want it to. Okay. So I shouldn't have been able to do anything with the sweeping anyway. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I was yeah. like, I don't understand. And I couldn't even like, honestly, it took more like strength maybe isn't the word, but like maybe it is to, to sweep the way you're supposed to, the way they were showing us you had to, I was like, I don't, I don't think I can physically <laughs> do this. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people think the sweeping's easy. Here's my like basically, I would say go on your kitchen floor, put all your body weight on a Swiffer, and then move your feet back and forth with one foot having a piece of Teflon on it. And just so you've got to have very good core strength to basically balance, you're basically they're balancing themselves on ice with a piece of Teflon on one foot and trying to put as much of their body weight as possible on the broom as they move it back and forth as hard as they can. Yeah. If you do it right, you're basically doing push-ups while running 100 feet. Yeah. Sideways with a sidestep. Sideways. <laughs> yeah. And to give people an idea, Jonathan, a, a decent club recreational player, how many additional feet could they add to a curling throw? And for the professionals that we're going to see at the Olympics, how many feet can they add to a curling throw with effective sweeping? I'd say like like a decent, like if they're really putting some effort into it, maybe two to four feet at the club level. And a pro, they'll say 12. I don't think that's true. I think about eight, I'd say six to eight. That just gives you such a, a bigger margin of error for what you do with the stone. Okay. But I'd say six to eight feet for a professional. So you mentioned that piece of Teflon, Jonathan. Let's talk about shoes and grippers and sliders. Did they have a, a pull-on slider for you, Lauren, when you went and curled at, uh, at Triangle? Yeah, we had to have some kind of something on our shoes for sure because, yeah, it was definitely very slippery. <laughs> Yep. It's a, and it is, it, as Jonathan said, it's a piece of Teflon. So go into curling shoes, Jonathan. It's so it's either Teflon, some people might have steel, but it's basically you want one foot that's very slidey. So the Teflon or the steel is on the ice and they're trying to put all their body weight on that to best let them slide. So they use that when they're delivering. So a very common question Ryan will get and I will get about learn to curls is I don't skate. But you don't have to skate at all because there's no skates involved in curling. It's actually just Teflon on the ice. So you're actually sliding. And the other foot will have some, something very grippy on it. Normally rubber, but like a little um, kind of like, how do you describe it? Bubbly rubber? I don't know. How, how do you explain what gripper is, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it does what it says it grips. Yeah. So yeah. Like, ice, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So you have a gripper one and a slidey one. And the idea is you, you kind of shuffle off between the two. So you use the gripper one to stop yourself and put the weight on that when you're not trying to move around and you put your body weight on the slider one when you're trying to move around. So that's the basic idea with that. If you're if you're right-handed, your slider foot will be your left foot. Yeah, it's always the opposite foot. Yeah. P.S. Like, I was going to say, one thing that really sticks out in my mind about 
curling was the like how far you have to just trust that you can let yourself slide because it feels very weird and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> was it scary when you were sliding or no? Well, uh, I am clumsy. Wonder. I'm clumsy. So like, yes, for that reason. Cause I just, we were also doing a video and I was like, I do not want to fall on a video. And like, everyone was sure I was going to fall. I was like, when I got through the day without falling, I was like, I am good. I am fine. I did not <laughs> fall, but it does feel like it just, and, and you have to have like flex more flexibility than I think people realize too. Like that was the part that I'm like, I have to get real low here and I'm not sure that my body will move that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, the sliding position is really actually pretty taxing too. Uh, it's like a lunge. You're putting, ideally, you're putting all of your body weight on your slider foot up front. So you're and you're putting very little on the back. Uh, you have to maintain balance or else you fall over. And you've got to do it pretty quickly in order to get the stone moving. So the stone's forty five pounds. So you're you're basically doing a lunge with a forty five pound object in front of you on ice. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's it's a lot and let me tell you if you're not super flexible it will uh, it will take a lot out of you and then jonathan mentioned stopwatches that's pretty much the only really the only other major piece of equipment is the stopwatch jonathan what are they timing they're trying to time how fast the stone is moving from two fixed points and they're doing that for a couple of reasons one is to get a sense of how hard they have to throw the stones on that ice surface. So different ice surfaces have different speeds and curlers will often refer to split times they use with the stopwatches to, to each other to say how fast the ice is going. So it's the, the, the terminology in curling is reading the ice. And so one of the ways they read the ice is how fast is the ice playing. That, that speed can vary across the sheet. So sometimes they're very worried there's a part that may have frost and that'll be a bit slower or there'll be a part that's been played on a lot and that'll tend to run a little bit quicker. And so they're using the stopwatches to read the ice. The other place you might see them using stopwatches is uh, during the delivery that one of the sweepers will try to take what's called a split time. So they'll measure how long it took the thrower to go from the back line to the hog line, for example, and they'll use that split time to get a guess as to how fast that stone's going to decide how much sweeping they need to do to get the stone where they want it to go. All right, let's go into the teams. There are four Olympic or Paralympic competitions in curling, uh, and these competitions are played between 10 teams of four men, 10 teams of four women, 10 teams of mixed doubles teams that have one man and one woman, and then 12 teams of four wheelchair athletes during the Paralympics, um, where each team must have at least one woman on the team. Four-person mixed gender curling does exist and has its own world championship. However, it is not part of the Olympic program. So traditional curling, because mixed doubles really, how old is mixed doubles, Jonathan? It's really not that old, is it? It's as old as the Continental Cup, so maybe 15 years. No one listening to this knows what the Continental Cup is. It's like this weird made-for-TV event uh, they came, the Canadians came up with early 2000s, and they just started inventing some odd events for that, and one of them was the, the Continental Cup. Yep. So mixed doubles is about 20 years old. Um, what, what I will, yeah, traditional curling or four-person 
curling. Uh, there's four positions, the lead, the second, the third, sometimes called the vice skip, and the skip. Usually on most teams, the skip is going to throw last. Each team during an end, which is kind of you know the rotation where the two teams are going to throw rocks back and forth, the lead will always throw a team's first two rocks. The second will always throw the team's second two rocks. The third or the vice will always throw the third two rocks, and then the skip will throw the last two. So the skip is throwing the most important rocks. The person who is called the skip on the team, uh, they're the person who's going to be calling the shots from one end. Um, kind of go, in, go into exactly what the skip is doing um, when they're moving their broom around and yelling at the person that's about to throw the rock. So probably the closest analogy in like mainstream sports to a skip is a quarterback. So the skips or maybe a point guard in basketball, right? They're calling the play. So they call every single shot. They're usually the ultimate decider. Others, you might have people interject a bit, but normally the skip kind of goes, no, this is what it should be. They're also doing this thing that I call reading the ice before, which is they're they're looking at how much the ice curls because they have to set up the target for where the person aims for where the stone's going to break from that spot to where they want it to end up. And then they're also yelling at the sweepers to try to communicate how much sweep is, is required to get the stone to go where they want it to go. So they're really, they really do quarterback every single shot and they do most of the yelling and they'll definitely be mic'd up on TV and kind of talking about their strategy all the time. They'll be the ones that are breaking it down and telling people like where to go and stuff. Okay. So like a coach even almost, or like a coxswain. Yeah, like a coxswain. Often teams will have a coach too, but the coach doesn't interact that much in curling. They're only allowed one timeout per game. So the coach really can't be yelling in plays in curling like you can have in other sports. So uh, the the skips really got to make all the calls themselves. One of the questions I always get asked at a learn to curl is, are you a sweeper or a thrower? And most people do both except for lazy skips like Jonathan, who only call where the shot is going to go and then calls out um, whether the sweeper should sweep. The lead, the second and the third, they're going to be sweeping their teammates rocks. So you've got like the initial guy doing like taking a shot and then everybody else trying to kind of get the get it closer, essentially. Yeah, with sweeping, yep. Oh, right, right, right. With sweeping, okay. Jonathan, kind of go into what, real briefly, like what would you say are the characteristics of lead, second, third, skip? Is there any, like, spe- what would you say they specialize in? I think the lead's the most specialized. So they specialize in putting up guards. So that means putting stones in front of the rings. And they also, their specialty shot's this thing called the tick shot, where, because you're not allowed to remove a guard for the first five stones, but you are allowed to move it around. So very good leads have specialized the art of just kind of bumping the opponent's stones around to favorable positions. And that's a very tricky shot. It takes a lot of skill. Uh, so they're, and they basically throw probably guards, draws, which means brings things in the rings, and that tick shot, and that's about it. But they have to be very consistent at it. So leads often throw in the, the 90 percentile. Like you get scored in your shots, and you'll see on the screen shooting percentage, the top leads are, are shooting like 90%, which is really, really good. 
and they're also very good sweepers normally. The second tends to be the muscle on the team. So they're often there primarily because of their sweeping. And they also throw a lot of the power shots, so a lot of the takeouts, which make the other stones go away. So they, they can throw it hard. So they tend to be the power position player. Thirds, thirds, are, thirds do a little bit of everything. So they do a bit of sweeping, a bit of throwing. They help a bit with the skip. So they, they skip for the skip when the skip's throwing. So they're called the vice. So they kind of have to be the jack of all trades. Uh, and they, they often tend to be the best shot makers on the team. Like on really good teams, they'll, they'll try to put their best overall shot maker at third. And then the skip has to be the top strategist. And the one shot a skip absolutely has to have is the ability to make the pressure last shot. So they've got to be really clutch under pressure. Often that shot's if they've done a good job, is fairly simple, but they just if they miss it, it could be like a four or five point swing. So they just got to be absolutely ice in their veins making those shots. Which position would, would you think you would be best at, Lauren? Well, I can't. I'm not good at sweeping. So, oh, man. What like what? Where wherever the places that y'all feel like you can best minimize the person that is the worst. Like, where is that? <laughs> I would say probably second because yeah. the second the seconds are usually throwing the big weight shots. So really, it's just if you can if you can hit your target and throw the rock really hard, you can be a good second and sweep. Uh, well, <laughs> and get one thing out of me. Probably not both. You know. <laughs> I always loved playing vice because the vice is also kind of the conduit between the skip. And the other two players, you kind of have to take, uh, like if the skip's mad at another player, you know, they'll yell at you, you know, tell that so-and-so that he's doing this and it's causing him to miss. And then you can take that information and give it to the lead or the second in a way that will actually be constructive to them. See, that's, if I, I can follow instructions or at least, you know, <laughs> more or less. Right. And then mixed doubles, which will be the first uh, competition that runs in the Olympics. It's weird. It's, uh, it's kind of way different than the four person game. And so there's only, there's only two players. It's the male and the female player. Um, but the order isn't fixed. So one in each round in each end, um, instead of throwing eight stones, a team throws five. So you have one player that will throw the first and last stone. And then you'll have one player who throws the middle three and you can actually change during a game who's throwing the first and the last and who's throwing the middle three. Oh, interesting yeah mixed doubles is really fun to play i am i am not the biggest fan of watching it on tv but i will say it is an absolute blast to play it goes really quick you can get the at the club level you can get a game done in what like an hour and 20 minutes jonathan yeah about that i, th- I think 90 minutes max it, it can go very quickly i i like playing it i, I like you yeah, i don't find it as interesting to watch just because um the strategy is not as complex. They basically dumb down the strategy for TV. So like, like traditional curlers, they don't like mixed doubles as much as uh, conventional curling. But my mom, who doesn't really follow curling at all, she really likes mixed doubles. It's fast and uh, easy to follow. So it's a bit like three-on-three basketball. It's kind of a similar idea. Like strip, strip, the, strip the game down a little bit to make it more palatable for TV and make it a faster game for people to watch. Okay. 
All right, let's get into gameplay. So when the two teams play each other, each game is played, obviously, between two teams, whether it's men's and women's or a mixed doubles game. Uh, and for men's and women's curling, the game is divided into 10 ends, which is kind of like an inning in baseball. For mixed doubles and wheelchair curling, the game is divided into eight ends. And in each, in each end, the teams will take turns delivering eight rocks each in the four-person game. The teams will deliver the total of 16 rocks back and forth. Jonathan, how is it decided which team goes first? At the start of the game or at the start of each end? Start of each end, and then we'll we'll get we'll get into how they determine it at the be- at the start of the game later. But um, at the start of each end, which team goes first? In curling, you'll hear the announcers talk about something called the hammer, which refers to which team has the last rock in the end. So, and it's, it's a big advantage. So, whoever throws last because they get the last shot, they get a big advantage. Effectively, that means they're on offense. So they they're they're trying to score several points ideally, but because they have last rock, as long as they don't completely mess up, they're likely to score one. So the in the in the game, the way you determine who has hammer is whoever scored last then throws first. So if someone scores two points, the next end they throw the first stone, and the team that was scored against then has the hammer and gets the last stone. Hammer's a really big advantage. So actually, um, some of the kind of analytics people crunched the numbers and they figured out that whichever team starts the game with hammer has a 58% chance of winning the game. And so uh, because of that, before, before they kind of discovered this about 15, 20 years ago, um, the way a team would get the hammers, they just flip the coin like you do in kind of a lot of sports, like you do a toss to decide who's, who gets uh, possession first. But now they do something before the game, which isn't shown on TV, called uh, last stone draw, where both teams throw two shots towards the middle of the pin, towards the middle of the house. And whichever team has the shortest cumulative distance, they get the hammer. So it's, it's kind of a skills-based way of determining who gets that advantage. All right, so then all 16 rocks are delivered for an end. And then at the after all the 16 rocks are delivered, we kind of went into scoring. As, in, as we kind of alluded to, only one team can score per end. The team that is closest to the button or that is closest to the pin is the team that scores in an end. And then however many rocks they have closest, that's how many points they get. And then at the end of the 10 ends, the team with the most points is the winner. Jonathan, do you want to go into the setup for an end for mixed doubles? Because it is very different. And as we <laughs> said, in a mixed doubles end, because it, it, well, it's the first thing that people are going to see once once curling gets underway on February 2nd, uh, hopefully, um, is mixed doubles will go first. And it's going to be very different from what they see in the four-person game. So five rocks are delivered per team. But what happens before the end begins, Jonathan? So in mixed doubles, one of the weird wrinkles is they've pre-positioned stones. So each team has one stone in play. The team with last rock gets a stone, but their stone is put behind the button. So it's in the ring. It's actually this starts off the close to the rings, but it's just a little bit behind the button. And the team with without last rock 
they have a stone that's on the center line in front of the rings called the guard. And so normally what they then do consequently is they just, the team with, with Outlast Rock, they'll just put theirs in the rings on the button and be sitting one. And the other team will come around and sit on top of that. So the reason that pre-setup is there is it forces people to put a lot of rocks in the middle of the rings. And the theory is the more rocks in play, the more interesting it is to watch. So it, it's a style of play that really favors a lot of offense, a lot of scoring. Okay. Obviously, we'll go much further in depth on how on how these teams try to accomplish all this in our episode on strategy. But mainly, the goal for the team with the hammer is to try to score at least two points in an end. Um, they're usually they're okay with scoring one, but if you score one, you lose the hammer, and the other team gets it. Um, if the team without hammer winds up with the closest rock at the end of an end, it's called a steal in the team uh, without hammer gets points. Uh, and then th- this is probably the, the weirdest one to explain to people, but there is a third outcome in an end, which is where no rocks are touching the house and no team scores. Uh, this is called a blanked end. And when this happens, the team with hammer will retain the hammer into the next end. Okay. Am I missing anything on on blanked ends, Jonathan, or is that is that good enough? I think it's good enough. I mean, do you want to get into the controversy around blank ends or not? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. People think blanked ends are boring. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. Um, but there is a strategy to it, uh, and teams will use blanked ends to try and give themselves the advantage of having hammer in the very last end. All right. Well, the only thing left to really talk about is kind of how these tournaments are, are set up. As I said, curling at the Olympics will get underway, scheduled to get underway February 2nd with mixed doubles. And that'll be followed by the four person men's and women's tournaments. And then in March will be the Paralympics with the wheelchair curling competition. So each of these teams will play a round robin um, in the four-person men's and women's. You're going to play nine games against the other nine teams in the competition. And then at the end, the top four teams will go into the medal round. And the medal round will be single elimination. The team that was first in the round robin will play the team that was fourth in one semifinal. And the team that was second will play the team that was third in the other semifinal the winners will play for gold, and the losers will play for bronze. Lauren, how how much do you follow curling during the Olympics? I watch it sometimes. My big winter Olympic sports, though, are uh, well, really just figure skating and any form of figure skating. I get obsessed with during the Olympics only, and pretend I know everything about it um, for just a co- you know for that couple weeks span. I'm a figure skating expert, and feel like the judges are screwing everyone. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing I like most about curling is there's really no officials there. There's technically an official, but you kind of, you call your own fouls on in curling. There's really no one, there's no one throwing flags on the play. Um, you kind of just handle, handle the game yourself among the players. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I feel like that's a red, a bit of a red flag for me though, because I mean, people are competitive and they won't, you know, there are people that will do whatever it takes, like literally to, to win. So it wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't surprise me if they 
uh, fudged if they committed a foul and they were just like, well, if no one saw that, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, really the only the only foul that you can really lie about and maybe get away with is if you're you're sweeping and you accidentally touch the rock while sweeping. For the most part, that's pretty obvious. Right. Um, and usually you call your own foul there. Because if you do, if you touch the rock while sweeping, the rock comes out of play. Um, that rule is actually a lot more complicated than how I just described it. But for <laughs> the most part, if you touch the rock with your foot or with your broom uh, while it's traveling down the ice, it just comes out of play. And so maybe not calling your own burned rock, as it's called, is really the only, really the only kind of foul that you could potentially get away with but there's so many cameras at the olympics that uh, it's kind of tough to get away with that one okay yeah that makes sense all right so you said you consider yourself a figure skating expert during the olympics do you (laughs) think you can consider yourself a curling expert now yes and i will say this curling is like um, for those of you who like to like have the just have the television on and have sport have some sort of sport on it is ideal for that because you really can i feel like during the olympics kind of hop in and out and of curling and not feel like you've, you know, missed, you can, you can hop in and out of the, of the curling, various curling matches going on and, and, and find yourself entertained and you don't have to pay super close attention the entire time and, you know, have it on in the background at the very least. I feel like people will learn something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, Lauren, do you have anything else that you'd, you'd want to ask us or, you know, in any parting thoughts for us? Was I, I guess, was I wrong to think that you have to be like super flexible, like that I would have had to undertake yoga to like, you know, <laughs> effectively, you know, throw the, throw the rock, throw the stone, whatever. I don't know. I'll just use both. So not to offend our British friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't consider myself super flexible and I can still do it. I think it's just, I think really it's more of a muscle memory thing than it is a flexibility thing for for getting down in that in that lunge position to to throw the rock okay so it's not as much it's also like trusting your own body which i don't super so (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay cool all right well lauren thank you so much for joining us this was a lot of of fun and uh hope hopefully uh hopefully you'll have a new appreciation for curling when you do have it on in the background um do you want to tell everyone where they can follow you uh, follow you know follow the things that you write covering sports there in North Carolina or even uh, follow you as you as you live tweet curling during the Olympics yeah. oh absolutely um I, I'm at Ellie Brownlow on Twitter um, you can find my stuff at wrlsportsfan.com I'm also on 99.9 the fan a couple times a week so yeah all right thank you so much and uh, we will talk to you again real soon check out the other episodes in this series where we go over strategy we go over jargon we go over history Uh, as i said it's choose your own adventure and decide how deep you want to go into this thing thank you for listening to rocks across the pond a curling podcast if you enjoyed this show we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.